Good evening. Uh, Do take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Down in Kalamazoo, the saints at Community, we have been um, studying this, uh, what has been known as, um, and called by many, as the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I, I understand that Pastor Dale has also been going through the book of Romans, but I got special permission that I could do Romans too when I was here. He said that'd be okay and that uh, he's on vacation and stuff. So by the time he got back to Romans, everybody would have forgotten what I said, and I get that. I understand. So, um, but this is what we're working on. It's really been a, a soul-enlarging uh, study, I think, for our people. We're doing this kind of verse-by-verse study um, of this great chapter, and I wanted to share that with you. I, I trust it will be a blessing to you as it has been to our people and as it has been uh, to me. So we're going to pick up uh, just with one verse tonight, one verse, and that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. I'm so grateful uh, to the session for the invitation to come and to speak again. Uh, Carrie Ann and, and the family we love when we can come up and, and uh, reconnect with you all. So thank you for that. And uh, let's now with, with eager anticipation dive into God's Word, ready to, to receive good things uh, from Him in His Word. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, In Daniel Nairi's best-selling book called Everything Sad is Untrue, he recounts the story of his journey from a devout Muslim home in Iran to fleeing the country for asylum after his mother converts to Christianity. And he tells the story, he's um, almost 40 now, but he, he wrote the book uh, about two years ago and tells the story from his 12-year-old perspective when this was taking place in his life. And uh, near the very end of the book, he reflects on a time when he and his mother and his sister were um, in a, a refugee camp essentially. They called it a refugee hotel, Hotel Barba, and it was in Italy. And it was kind of just this, this holding place where those at the hotel were waiting for a country to claim them so that they could go and start a new life somewhere else. And he highlights how his mother was at that hotel, at that, that camp, was the only, the only happy, eager, and expectant person there. And this is what he writes. Let me read you a bit from this book. He says, 12-year-old Daniel says, imagine you're in a refugee camp and you know it will be a year or more before anything happens. It's going to be a tough year, but for the person who thinks at the end of the year I'm going somewhere to be free, a place without secret police, free to believe whatever I want and to teach my children, and, and you believe it will be hard, but eventually you'll build a whole new life Well, that's like winning the lottery. It's like saying you'll get $100 million at the end of that year. But if you're thinking, every place is the same, and there will always be people who abuse you, and about how poor you'll be at first, well, then the sadness overtakes you. And it's like saying, instead of the lottery, at the end of the year, you'll get soup and a sandwich, and that's it. Here's the thing. You'll both have the same year at Hotel Barba, 
But one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you can do to prepare your kids for a new life. And the other will be slumped in the courtyard, surrendered to the idea that it's all one long river of blood. I don't know which belief is true. Nobody does. But what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. And that's how my mom did it. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. And so what's the secret to getting through suffering in this life? Uh, how can it be that, that you will not be overwhelmed, overtaken, drowned, destroyed, rendered entirely despondent by the trials that you face in life? Daniel's mom learned the secret from the Apostle Paul. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. And in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, our text tonight, what Paul says about the Christian's future is that it's so amazing. It's so wonderful. It's so great that even the most horrendous and horrible things in this life cannot detract from how amazing it is, how wonderful it is, how great it is. Indeed, as he says, the sufferings of this world aren't even worth a comparison to the glories of the next world. That's what Paul says in this little verse. And what we're going to do this evening in terms of unpacking it is first I want us to consider what Paul is not saying, what he does not say in this verse. Then we'll uh, explore what he, in fact, does say. Then we're going to ask, how can he say it? And we'll conclude with, how can we say it too? Okay? Does that make sense? We'll start with what he's not saying, then what he is really saying, how he can say it and make that claim, and how we can get to a position where we make the same claim as well. So first, what is Paul not saying when he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us? He is not saying that your suffering is not worth anything that your suffering is not worth anything. That's about the most pastorally insensitive thing a person could ever say, right? That all that terrible stuff uh, that's happened in your life has been meaningless. It's been for nothing. Your story, with all of its tears and, and its tales of woe, it's just a joke, really. And when you're going through a hardship and a trial, and I would say that everybody here is going through something, some sort of trial, uh, some of us, the trial is heavier than others, and perhaps some of us, uh, we don't feel that intense burden at this moment, but that doesn't mean that it won't come tomorrow or that you haven't already come out of it from years ago. So, so put yourself in this position. When you're going through an intense and immense trial, uh, perhaps uh, you lo lose your job, and now there's no way to pay uh, the bills. Uh, uh, you lose a loved one, uh, a spouse, uh, a child dies prematurely. Uh, you, you've received a terrible diagnosis yourself. Uh, maybe your, your adult children have, has, has just, uh, an adult child has just told you that they never want to see you again. Uh, you found out that your savings has been lost in a bad move by your financial advisor. You wake up to find that the person sleeping in the bed next to you isn't who you really thought they were, and, and they said that they want a divorce. They don't want to be a part of your life any longer. Maybe you're, you're uh, in, in a second or third round of rehab, and yet you just can't kick the habit. When, when you go through a hardship like that, 
there's a way that somebody, a Christian, well-meaning Christian, can come alongside you and, and try to apply this verse in a way that falls flat and fails to comfort the, the, the soul that's in distress. You know, they essentially say, well, they're there. You, you know, this, is, this isn't really anything. I mean, heaven is what it's all about, and it's going to be so much better there. So, well, they might not say it, but you ever get the impression what they're, what they're saying is, just get over it already? Um, what's missing there is an acknowledgement that our suffering is real, and at times it's torturous. And to apply this verse in that kind of flippant way can give the impression that none of it matters, but that's not what Paul is saying. Our suffering is worth something. And there are at least three reasons we know our suffering is worth something that we glean from the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, let me give you those very briefly. The first, the first reason uh, that we could highlight is our suffering matters because Christ suffered. Because Christ suffered. His entire life was marked by suffering. His mission of redemption was not complete until he suffered, we're told in Hebrews 2, verse 10. His mission is marked by suffering. He says it himself, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things. He must do it. And anything that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, must do cannot be meaningless. The Father doesn't uh, send his son on petty errands just to keep him busy or distracted, uh, just to get him out of his hair like perhaps we do with our children from time to time. No, no. Uh, the father only calls the son to those things which promote the splendor and display of his glory and majesty, and apparently somehow, some way, suffering does that. And so if suffering isn't worthless to the son, it's not worthless to us either. That's the first thing. Secondly, our suffering matters because we matter. We matter to God. Our existence is not pointless. We are made as image bearers of God. We're dear to Him. We're a delight to Him. And Paul has already said in Romans chapter 8 that if you're a Christian, you're His child. He's adopted you into His family. And if, to the parents in the room, you know that for your children, it's not just the successes that matter to you. It's just the success, successes that you share on social media, right? Well, my child's in the honor roll, or, uh, you know, they, they won this sporting competition. But you know that, that they're more than the sum of their successes. It's their successes and their failures that make them who they are, and you care about all of that. You care when, when your child gets passed over for a job that they really wanted, or when they don't get into the school they applied for, when they get dumped by their crush. These things matter to you. Why? Because your kids matter to you, and in the same way... We matter to God. Our suffering isn't meaningless to Him, so we should never deem it's worthless to us. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, our suffering is not worthless because of what God does through our suffering. Suffering is the, the fire that produces sanctification. Suffering is the crucible where God makes us into the people we're always meant to be. And the biblical authors have to come back to that over and over again to remind us. Think about how James opens his epistle. Count it, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That is to say, if you don't have those trials, you won't be complete and perfect and lacking nothing. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. And so, if you have gone through immense suffering, you know what the biblical authors are talking about. You know this is true. 
you know that you are better now than before that suffering occurred. Uh, Stories of addiction, poverty, or disease that the Lord has brought you through now enable you to say, if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't be who I am today, and who I am today is so much greater than who I was before, and so I praise God. I thank God for the trial, for the hardship, and for the suffering because it's made me who I'm supposed to be. So, Paul is not saying that our suffering isn't worth anything. Uh, The word worth does not um, apply to suffering, but as you look at the verse, you see it applies to this term of comparison. So, secondly, what is Paul actually saying? Paul is saying that the glory that we will soon experience is so great that it makes our suffering seem so small, so slight, and so light that they really do not compare in any significant way at all. John Stott said when it comes to suffering and glory, they need to be contrasted, not compared. What Paul is saying does not diminish the reality of suffering, but it magnifies the reality of glory. Glory is greater than suffering. And I want you to look at this verse and see if you can find the two reasons that Paul gives as to why glory is greater than suffering. He gives us two little hints, two reasons why glory is greater than suffering. This is what he's actually saying. The first reason, quite simply, is this. Glory is greater than suffering because it's longer. Glory lasts longer. Uh, Suffering belongs to this present time, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, uh, literally the now time. It's fleeting. It's brief. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. That's, that's suffering. Suffering belongs to this world, and yes, it's every aspect of our world is marked by suffering, true enough, but this world is passing away. Glory doesn't belong to the now time, but to the next time, and the next time is the new heavens and the new earth the world without end. This is not the only time Paul addresses the subject of the longer and therefore greater nature of glory compared to suffering. Pastor Adrian already read for us from Corinthians when he, Paul says, this light momentary affliction, light and momentary, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's, it's a sister passage to Romans 8, 18, very similar language. And he says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things you can see are transient. They're fleeting. They're brief. It's the now time, but the things that are unseen are forever. They're eternal. Glory belongs to that next time, the world without end. Amen, amen. That's what glory is all about. Glory is greater than suffering, because suffering is fleeting. Glory is forever. There's another reason that Paul gives as to why glory is greater than suffering. Glory is greater than suffering because it's longer, yes, but it's also greater than suffering because it is realer than suffering. I wonder if I could say it that way. Just hang with me here because this is, this is so critical. This is, this is the most important part of this text, I think. 
Glory is, is realer than suffering. It's more real than suffering. I, now, I've already underscored at the start of the sermon that, that our suffering is real. It's not insignificant. I'm not saying that suffering isn't real. I'm saying glory is more real because glory belongs to the age of consummation. When things, all things, will finally be as they should be. Right, we're talking about eternity and that, that kind of uh, uh, and how glory is longer than suffering, lasts longer because it's the eternal quality. But glory compared to suffering has this consummate quality as well, this perfect quality. When glory is ushered in, when we are glorified, when the new heavens and the new earth are, are revealed to us, we will see that, that this is what it's always been about. This is how it was always meant to be. And so, so what I'm saying, friends, is that while suffering is something that happens to us in this life, glory actually becomes us in the next life. That is not true of suffering. Suffering never becomes us. Suffering isn't who we are, but for the Christian, glory is who we are, and that will be revealed to us at the second coming of Christ. Glory is more real than suffering. Suffering is, is a shadow. Glory is a solid. Glory is more real. It's more true. And we see that in our text. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll note that Paul speaks of the glory that is to be revealed to us, to us, as though it were a show that we're watching. And that's true. Glory will be the vista that we behold for eternity. But the NIV puts it this way, and I think it's, it's a better way of putting it. Paul says, the glory that's to be revealed in us in us. So, we're talking about glory, the majesty and the splendor of God. It literally will be something that defines who we are in the life to come. What a thought. You know, John writes about it too, 1 John 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The, the biblical formula is that we become what we behold. Psalm 115 talks about the idols of the nations, and those who make them are like them. They're dead and lifeless. They, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have hands, but they can't handle feet, but they can't move. And those who make them are like them, so are those who trust in them and who worship them. And yet, for the Christian, John is telling us, when you behold, not an idol, but the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, you'll become like Him. You'll be made perfect in holiness like Him. What we have always, uh, what we're always meant to have been, what we can't see right now, beloved, we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, right? We're not perfect in holiness yet, but when we see Him, we'll be made like Him, we'll become what we behold. Or what do we read in 2 Corinthians 3? We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. Paul will write elsewhere, that at the last day we will all be changed. This is what he's talking about. We'll finally become what we've always have, uh, what we are always meant to be. Glory is what we are always made for. And when we are glorified, we will be who we really and truly are. Right now, suffering and sin obscures who we really and truly are. 
But when we're glorified, we finally will be who we've always meant, who who we were always meant to be. And so that's what I mean when I say glory is greater than suffering because glory is more real. It's more true of us. Suffering is fleeting. It's a shadow. Glory is the real deal. Glory is solid. Uh, Near the conclusion of uh, the epic Lord of the Rings saga, Samwise Gamgee is reunited with Gandalf the Grey, who he thought uh, was dead, and now he sees him. He sees that now he's Gandalf the White. Uh, he had been under the impression, Sam, that, that since pretty early on the start of their, their trek to Mordor, that, that his beloved friend and mentor and father-like figure, Gandalf, had, had been killed. And this is the first time he learns that his dear friend is alive, first time he's seen him. Sam says it feels like it's been an eternity, and this is what Sam says when he sees Gandalf. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asks this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world? Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. Now, this is a wonderful illustration of Paul's point in Romans 8, 18, that question that Sam has. Is everything sad going to be untrue? By the way, that's where Daniel Nairi got the title of his book that we quoted earlier. You see, friends, it's not that suffering is unimportant. It's that it's ultimately untrue. It's not the defining thing about us. And as Gandalf says, suffering is a shadow Glory is the real thing. Glory is the solid. That's what Paul says. Now we want to know how can he make such a claim? How can he make such a claim? You know, our suffering can be so intense uh, that to hear somebody say that it's light and momentary, we think, well, then you haven't suffered at all, right? Well, we can't say that's true of Paul. Paul suffered in ways uh, that are almost unimaginable. You can read of those in 2 Corinthians 6 and chapter 11. Uh, so it's, it's not that Paul doesn't have a good sense of how terrible suffering can be. So how is he so sure that glory is going to be better? Well, he tells us. Look with me at the text. He says, for I have considered it. He considered it. Uh, he reckoned it. The word here, it's a mathematical term. It means he calculated In other words, this is not just a flippant Hallmarkian aphorism that Paul's throwing out because it sounds nice. And it does sound nice, right? The troubles of this life aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to come. No, but Paul is not just throwing something out there. No, he, he thought about this. He worked it out. Uh, nor is this something that just fell into his lap because this goes against all common sense, does it not? That's why it takes intellectual work to get to this conclusion, but Paul has become convinced of it. He is so convinced that the verb that he uses, which is translated at the end of the verse, to be revealed, is written in a Greek style that uses a past tense verb translated as a future, the point being uh, to underscore the certainty of it. Paul is so sure uh, that the glory we're going to experience is better than the suffering we go through now. He's so sure of that glory that it's coming, he writes as though it's already happened. And by the way, That's true of every single one of the promises of God. Did you know that? As soon as God speaks a promise, it is as good as done. 
That's our comfort. That's what we cling to, and that's what Paul's clinging to. I've reckoned, I've worked it out. I've, I, I, I've, I've come convinced, I'm certain that the glory to be revealed is not worth comparing to the suffering we go through. How is he so sure? And the answer is the gospel. The gospel, friends, think of it. The gospel is the story of the man of sorrows dying on a cross, but then being raised again as the king of glory. That's, that's, the, that's the arc of the gospel story. The suffering of Christ led to his glorification, a glory that Paul experienced firsthand on the road to Damascus. And so when he says he's considered this or he's reckoned this, what's meant by that is he has a firm conviction reached by a rational thought on the basis of the gospel. Let me read that one more time, and that's uh, from uh, a New Testament commentator who says that Paul means here a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. So Paul saw what God did in the gospel. He thought on what God did in the gospel. He thought on the character of God, the promises of God. And his only conclusion is, well, this is just what God does. This is how God works. And so it will be how he works for me too and for all of his people. He sent his son to earth to make the sufferings and the sad things of this world come untrue to make glory and joy our ultimate reality. Now, that's how Paul can make such a claim, a claim that says even the worst trials in this life aren't worth the time or the energy of comparison to the glory of the next life. It's faith. That's how he gets there. It's faith. And that's how we can make a claim like this too. And so, finally, this evening, we've seen what Paul's not saying, then we've seen what he's said, and then we figured out how he said it. Now we want to know, how can I say it too? How can I share this conviction? I'm guessing there are some of you out there who are thinking, this is really great for Paul. How can, how can it be true for me? How can I really believe it? Well, we need faith. And I don't mean a fingers crossed, bated breath wish that things will be better in the by and by. That's not faith. By faith, I mean a firm conviction based on the promises of God's Word and the proof of God's Word, that enjoying God's glory is always what humanity was meant for. And it's in the coming of Christ that we know even sin itself can't keep us from attaining that which God has destined us for, right? You, you survey the biblical data and you say, no, He's, he's made me for glory. And then we then we think of our own sin. How can I reach glory because of my sin? Then you go to the gospel and you learn how. Even suffering can't keep us from what we were really made for when God was so determined, so determined to bring us into that glorious enjoyment of a new heavens and a new earth that He would send His Son to die to make it happen. Do you have that faith of Paul? Look to Jesus, my friends. You look to Jesus, and, and what do you see? Well, I look to Jesus, and I, I see the cross, and the cross tells me that life is hard, that, that life is sad, that life is painful and cruel and heartbreaking, but His empty tomb tells me that this life isn't all that there is. Amen? 
Yes, I look at the cross and I see the sufferings of this world and then I see the empty tomb and I see a way to glory. That's, that's, that's what the gospel is showing us. This is a pattern. Christ suffered to be glorified. And if you suffer with him, you will be glorified along with him as well. These words from Jesus tell me I get to be part of this everlasting life. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. That makes all the difference. Jesus is there. He's readying that glorious home for us. And so we need that conviction, that faith. Because otherwise the sufferings of this world will overtake us and will overwhelm us. Just a few weeks ago, our sister church in Hillsdale held a funeral for one of their members named Arthur. Arthur was seven months old, and he was at daycare, and he was put down for his regular afternoon nap, and he never woke up. No explanation. SIDS, which most cases of SIDS happen before six months, and he's just turned seven months old. And um, I spent some time with Pastor Hennis, Hillsdale minister at General Assembly a few weeks ago, and he was telling me this story, and uh, we're weeping, hearing the heartbreak uh, that Everett had to, to witness and come alongside to minister to this family as they heard this tragic news. That was, that was two Thursdays ago. But the thing that made me weep all the more was when Everett told me that on Sunday, Arthur's parents and his two-year-old brother were in church, morning and evening. And you think, how? How? How in the world could they do that? And I know the answer. The answer is that this dear family worked it out. They reckoned it. They, they looked at, at, at their situation and their heartache, and, and they took those facts, but they compared them with the facts of the gospel, and they came to this conclusion. The sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glories of the next, and so we want to go to that outpost of glory here on earth. We want to go to church. They got it. They understood. And if they didn't have that hope of glory, the heartache would have destroyed them. Well, friends, if you, need, if you want to have that conviction, you need to know it's not just going to fall into your lap. Uh, you have to contemplate. You have to search the Bible. You have to learn the character of God. You have to, to take His promises. You have to test out His promises. You have to see also the pattern laid out in the life of Christ from suffering and humiliation uh, to glory and exaltation. And when we are united by faith, that pattern becomes our pattern. Peter says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You need to work it out. You need to be convinced of these promises of God. Otherwise, the suffering works will overtake you. And how sad would it be, how tragic would it be to be overwhelmed and overcome 
and destroyed by a suffering that is so fleeting and so temporary that it's really not worth comparing to what we have coming in glory. John Newton, the famous hymn writer, was also a a prolific letter writer, and many of his personal correspondences have been preserved and published today. One I was reading in in his uh, volume, uh, in the volume of, uh, four-volume collection of of Newton's letters, uh, one struck out, and it was written uh, to a woman who was struggling uh, with suffering, and he wanted to write to encourage her. Um, he, He acknowledges that her suffering is both intense, but that it also spanned a long time period, and he wants to help her properly think of her suffering and to reclaim joy. And so, and to that end, in this letter, he, he invites uh, this woman to go on a walk with him. He's going, to, he's going to lead her on this walk in the letter. And he, he says, come, madam, let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while, and let us walk to Golgotha, and there take a view of his troubles. And so, you see, he's trying to, to get her to better, uh, have a better perspective on her suffering by, by looking at the suffering of Jesus. But what ends up putting into perspective the suffering best is not when they walk to Golgotha, it's when they keep walking and go to the empty tomb. They go to the tomb, they find it's empty, and they're looking for Jesus. This is the way that, that John Newton is, is um, describing the scene. He's, he's very uh, rich in his imagery there, and he says, at that moment, though, madam, let's look up into the heavens, and we'll see the clouds are parted, and we see the risen and ascended Jesus on his throne and in all of its glory. And then he tells her to do this. He says, let's pull out a scale now. Now that we've done this walk and we've been to the empty tomb and we see that he's not there, but in fact he's in glory, let's take out a scale. And this is what he writes. Let us compute. Let us calculate again. Let us put in our trials and our griefs on one side. So not just hers, but his too, both of theirs. And then he says very sarcastically, oh, what a change because the scale doesn't move at all. He says, I thought them very heavy, now I find them light. The scale hardly turns with them. But then he says, well, how shall we manage to put in the weight on the other side? It's, he- it's heavy indeed, an exceeding eternal weight of glory. It's beyond my grasp and power, what they're, what they're seeing in heaven, to take that and to put it on the other side of the scale. And so Newton says, no matter, comparison is needless. I see with the glance of an eye that there is no proportion. I am content I am satisfied, and from this moment I wipe away my tears, and I forbid them to flow, or if I must weep, they shall be tears of gratitude, love, and joy, because he's seen the glory, a glory given to him, and he can't even get it onto the scales, but he says, I don't, I don't need to. Comparison is needless. But then Newton does something brilliant. He doesn't end the letter there. He says, alas, look up again. The clouds have closed, and we can no longer see His glory. What will they do now? Will they despair? This is what Newton says. However, though I don't now see it, I have seen it, and I know it's there, and all shall be well. That's the secret of the Christian, too. It's the conviction of Paul, and it's the conviction of the Christian that even when we can't see it, even when we don't sense it, even if we don't feel it, we know it because God has promised it in His Word. He's pictured it for us in the gospel, 
We know the suffering is not the end of the story, and so we do not let the sufferings of this life overwhelm us or overtake us. We don't let them define us, for we have reckoned. We have worked it out. We've done the math. We've done the math, and the solution has shown that every ounce of suffering that we experience in this life will be converted into pounds, indeed metric tons of glory in the next. And let me leave you with this, friends. What you believe about the future will change how you live today. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word does not shy away from talking about difficult things like suffering, but We also thank you that as you address these difficult subjects, there's always wonderful hope. And the hope of glory is something we've considered tonight. I pray for this congregation. I do not know them well, but I imagine there are some here tonight who are suffering in extreme ways. Pray that you would, by your Spirit, make this passage come to life and that they would cling that we would all cling to the promises that you make, the assurance that you give us, that glory is so amazing, that glory will become us, and that that's where we're headed. And when we know that, we are able to face the sorrows and the sufferings of this life. Lord, we want to be able to say that whatever our lot, that you have taught us to say, it is well with our soul. And now we pray, O Spirit, come be the after preacher and apply these words of your holy scripture, the words of this sermon, unto the edification, the encouragement, the conviction, and even the conversion of those here today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand in conclusion by singing, When Peace Like a River.
now and receive your Lord's blessing upon you. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.